everyone, welcome back to Jew Auto Know. I'm Jason Harris. Uh, this episode is a re-airing from a few weeks back, the story of the Zion Mule Corps during World War I. I deleted the original from the site, which is why you can't find it now. So if you're a faithful listener and have heard this one before, then feel free to skip ahead. But if not, then this is a story you really ought to know. In the late 1800s and early 1900s, as more and more Jews emigrated to Eretz Yisrael, the land of Israel, to settle down, they began to realize that they would need a system of self-defense. The small farms and settlements scattered around Palestine mostly used Arab guards to protect them from banditry. But a key element of Zionism was not just Jewish self-determination, but also Jewish self-reliance. Many of these early pioneers, these chalutzim, especially those who subscribed to socialist ideals, thought it essential that the Jews learn how to defend themselves. And, of course, if they ever wanted to have a state of their own, they would need a national army. But the Jewish people hadn't fielded an army in nearly 1800 years, not since the Bar Kokhba revolt against the Roman Empire in the year 135 of the Common Era. Here and there, the occasional Jew would serve in the army of whatever state he lived in, but as a whole, the Zionists had very little military experience. But that was all about the change. Because just at the time when the Zionists were trying to figure out how to get that military experience, something happened. The world plunged into war. <laughs> I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. We're all pretty familiar with the basics of World War I. Germany on one side against Britain, France, and Russia on the other, with ferocious fighting in the trenches on the Western Front. But there was also an Eastern Front. And the Eastern Mediterranean, from Istanbul to Egypt to Palestine, was a major zone of contention between the Allies and the collapsing Ottoman Empire, which was aligned with Germany. And in the middle of all this were the recently immigrated Jews of Palestine, who weren't quite sure what to do. On the one hand, the Jewish community was afraid of angering the Ottoman Turks by coming out on the side of the Allies. After all, Palestine was under Ottoman control and had been for 400 years. They watched in horror as the Ottomans committed genocide against hundreds of thousands of Armenians on the pretext that the Armenians were siding with the Russians. So the Jews, most of whom were of Russian and Eastern European origin, worried that the Ottomans would do the same to them. The Ottoman Empire was falling apart. Its regime was in a state of political, economic, financial, and military turmoil. Its territories were starting to slip away. Corruption was hollowing out the government. And in its paranoia, the empire saw enemies everywhere. The Ottomans did consider those Jews of European origin to be citizens of enemy states. Were it not for the intervention of Germany, there might have been a general massacre of the Jewish population. Looking to obtain American Jewish support for the German cause, Germany made a point of supporting Jewish settlement in Palestine and convinced its Ottoman ally not to expend further bloodshed against the Jews. Instead, at the end of 1914, the Turks began expelling several thousand Jews from Palestine, mostly from Tel Aviv, especially those of Russian origin. Anyone with foreign citizenship or who was suspected of undertaking Zionist activities was forcibly deported to Alexandria, Egypt, then under British control. Now, the overall percentage was small. Only about 15% of the Jewish population was deported, roughly 6,000 people or so. 
But in doing so, the Ottomans ironically stepped on their own toes, for a few hundred of these deported Jews would form the core of a renewed Jewish fighting unit on the side of the British. So, we have Jews in Palestine and Jews in Egypt. The British are also in Egypt, looking to fight against the Ottoman Empire for control over the Middle East. It is into this scene that one of the most influential and then controversial figures in Israeli history enters. Vladimir Jabotinsky was a Russian journalist from Odessa, whose Zionist ideology closely followed that of Herzl's program of political Zionism. But with a twist. Although he was a devoted follower of Herzl and became the leading Zionist and Hebrew-speaking intellectual in Russia, he had a more right-wing perspective. Outraged by the pogroms afflicting the Jews of Russia, in particular the infamous Kishniev pogrom of 1903, Jabotinsky formed Jewish self-defense leagues with the purpose of arming and training Jews to defend their communities. His famous slogan was, Better to have a gun and not need it, than to need it and not have it. In his spare time, he translated Edgar Allan Poe into Hebrew. I don't want to get too much into his ideology now. I'll save that for a later episode. Jabotinsky will eventually add a whole new branch to our Zionist tree, this one with a more antagonistic approach to the Arabs, and one more focused on militarization and aggressive colonization of the land of Israel. If you want to find the origins of today's right-wing politics in Israel, it all traces back to Jabotinsky. But at the cusp of World War I, Jabotinsky was running around Europe as a war correspondent for a Russian newspaper. He believed that neither the Turks nor the Arabs would ever truly support the Zionist project. The only way to advance, he believed, was for Turkey to lose the war and for the Jews to be on the winning side. So he advocated that the Jewish community in Palestine act boldly to join the war effort on the side of the Allies. So he made his way to Alexandria, Egypt, where the Jewish deportees from Palestine had been set up in refugee camps built by the British. By the way, it was an American ship, the armored cruiser USS Tennessee, that picked up the Jews in Jaffa and took them to Alexandria. On the night of March 3, 1915, Jabotinsky organized a meeting of eight community leaders to figure out a response to the Turkish deportations. It was to be a fateful meeting in the history of Israel. For there, Jabotinsky met a kindred spirit, and the two of them would launch a new Zionist project to create a Jewish army. Joseph Trumpledor is the man Jabotinsky met in their refugee camp that evening in March 1915. To say that he was a colorful character is really to understate his life's adventures. Really, he deserves his own podcast episode. And come to think, that's not a bad idea. But here's the short of it. A Russian like Jabotinsky, but from a privileged family, Trumpledor, a vegetarian, volunteered for the Russian army in 1902. He was sent east, into the middle of the Russo-Japanese War, where he lost an arm to shrapnel. After several months' recovery, he rejoined his unit, and when asked why he continued to fight, said, I still have another arm to give to the motherland. Captured by the Japanese after the surrender of Port Arthur, he spent his year in captivity printing a Jewish newspaper. He was a passionate Zionist, a true classic dreamer of working the land and living communally, and he planned with some fellow inmates to go to Eretz Yisrael upon his release. Upon his return to Russia, where he was the most decorated Jewish soldier in Russian history, he emigrated to Palestine in 1911. 
where he put his one arm to hard labor, working the land at Kibbutz Daganya along the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Until, considered an enemy national by the Ottomans, he too was deported to Alexandria and walked into that 1915 meeting with Vladimir Jabotinsky. And all of that is not even the reason why he's considered a national hero in Israel. He'll perform more feats later. The outcome of the jabotinsky Chumpeldor meeting was clear. We want to fight for the British. The problem was that the British couldn't figure out how to use them. First of all, there was no plan yet to fight the Ottomans in Palestine. And even if there was, the British didn't want the Jews to get involved there. And second, the British Empire did not allow foreign soldiers to join the army. On the other hand, there was support in Britain for a Jewish unit. First, because the anti-Semites there still associated Jews with immense financial power, which Britain would need to fight a war, and second, because of biblically-minded Christians in Britain who wanted to help the Jews reclaim their ancient homeland. So, the Brits offered a compromise. The Jews could form a supply battalion, a mule transport unit that would carry supplies on donkeys to British soldiers at the front lines somewhere else in the war. Jabotinsky refused. He wanted to be a soldier. He wanted to fight. He left Egypt and went back to Europe to try to keep persuading the British to organize a Jewish unit. Trumpledor, on the other hand, seized the opportunity. As he told Jabotinsky, to get the Turks out of Palestine, we have to smash them. And therefore, which front you choose to fight them is just a question of tactics. Any front leads to Zion. And thus, with the Grand Rabbi officiating at the ceremony, the Zion Mule Corps was born in March 1915. 1,780 years after the last Jewish army was defeated by the Romans, there was, once again, a Jewish fighting force in the world. Plus the mules. But if anyone thought they were signing up for a laid-back tour shuffling supplies deep behind friendly lines, and no one who signed up thought that, they were in for a rude awakening. For the Zion Mule Corps was quickly given a mission to support Allied fighting units landing on the shores of Turkey with an aim to crash their way to Istanbul. A place that, even though it took place in the east, is probably the most famously recognized battle of World War I. Gallipoli. The Gallipoli campaign was not one battle, but a year-long effort to break the Ottoman lines and land ashore in Turkey. It was an utter disaster for the Allies, Britain and France, as well as Australia and New Zealand. The only major military victory for the Ottoman Empire, it has come down in Turkish history as a defining Alamo moment, the last stand by the Turks in the face of their crumbling empire. Casualties were enormous. Some 100,000 men were killed in total, and another 125,000 were wounded, torn apart by bullets, artillery, bombs, and terrible sickness from living in trenches along the beach. And in the thick of it were a small band of a few hundred Zionists. They were fighting not just for the Allied cause, but also for that Zionist dream of a new state and a new Jew. For the renewal of their ancient pride as warrior people, not the people beaten down by pogrom and persecution in Europe. For this, for Jewish history, for the coming Jewish state, they were prepared to sacrifice, and although they began the campaign as a supply unit, they were quickly absorbed in the fighting and suffered casualties. Trumpledor was shot in the shoulder, but, you know, carry on then. As one British captain wrote of his interactions with the Zionists, despite their over-fondness for saluting, they showed a curious disregard for shellfire. They also managed, in true Zionist fashion, 
to keep some outward appearances of Jewishness. They flew a blue and white flag alongside the British Union Jack. They took their orders in Hebrew. Upon leaving port to head to Gallipoli, they sang the Zionist anthem, Hatikva. And, my favorite tidbit, they refused, even under fire, to unload bacon from the ships until the Grand Rabbi gave them special dispensation. He even allowed them to eat it, if it came to that. And so, the Zion Mule Corps distinguished themselves in the Gallipoli campaign, surprising many who had doubted their courage. Even their commander, the Irish Protestant Lieutenant Colonel John Henry Patterson, once wrote, Never since the days of Judah Maccabee had such sights and sounds been seen and heard in a military camp, the drilling of uniformed soldiers in the Hebrew language. That was exactly what the Zionists were going for. Meanwhile, back in Palestine, which was still under the control of the increasingly harsh Ottoman authorities, a different sort of Zionist effort was underway. Espionage. Now, a majority of Jews in Palestine were against taking part in the war effort, especially on the side of the Allies. They saw what was happening to the Armenians and feared that they had left persecution in Europe only to be massacred again in Palestine. Community leaders publicly issued a statement saying that it was wrong for a Jew to fight for the British in the hopes of gaining the Ottomans' favor and staving off disaster. As I mentioned, they were ultimately wrong, as it was only the intervention of their German allies that prevented the Turks from carrying out measures even harsher than deportation. And for a small group of committed Zionists in Palestine, they decided to take action. Covert action. An espionage unit called Nili was formed by the Aronson siblings, Sarah, Aaron, Alex, and Rivka. Like Jabotinsky, the Aronsons were convinced that there would be no Jewish future in Palestine under the Ottomans, and that the only solution was to take advantage of the war to defeat the Turks and claim Palestine. The name Nili came from a phrase in the Hebrew Bible, in the book of Samuel, that means the glory of Israel will not lie down. They were soon joined by a couple of other friends and began carrying out spying and sabotage operations against the Ottomans. Actually, it's an interesting story of how they got into this position. Aaron Aronson was a world-famous agronomist at that point. When a plague of locusts wrecked Palestine's crops and the Ottomans struggled to feed their army, they allowed Aaron and his friend and assistant Avshalom free reign to travel the countryside. From this advantage, they were able to obtain lots of information regarding troop movements and other strategic data. While Aaron led himself and others to try to make contact with the British authorities in Egypt, Sarah ran operations from her home in Zichron Yaakov, a small town along the Mediterranean Sea and a frequent lunch stop for birth writers. I think I talked about it a couple episodes ago. She was 24. She also deserves an entire podcast episode of her own. Although married to a man she didn't love and living in Istanbul at the time the war broke out, she was determined to join her siblings in Palestine despite the danger. And equally important to her, to join up with the man she was really in love with, her brother's friend Avshalom. It took her a month to reach Palestine, a journey which today takes just a couple of hours, and on the way she witnessed the horrific cruelty being done to the Armenians. She vowed that such a thing would not come to pass for the Jews. Neely's efforts began, but were hampered by a lack of contact and coordination with the British. Avshalom was determined to reach the British lines, and after a passionate and tearful goodbye to Sarah that was recorded by her brother, he set out. But he didn't make it. 
he was killed by Bedouin tribesmen near Gaza. The story goes that when the Israeli army took Gaza after the Six-Day War in 1967, a local Bedouin led soldiers to a spot known locally as the Jew's Grave. There was a single date tree growing there. The soldiers exhumed the body, which was indeed that of Avshalom, and found that the tree had come from a date seed that had been in his pocket when he died and was buried. His death foretold the fate of the rest of Neely, none of whom survived even to 1920. While Sarah rode from town to town on horseback, gathering intelligence, the Turks were circling around the spy network. On the first day of Sukkot, October 1917, the Turkish army surrounded Zikron Yaakov, where they knew Sarah was hiding. She had refused an opportunity to sneak away a few days earlier because she couldn't figure out how to also get her family and friends out. For three days, the Turks mercilessly tortured Sarah and her family in front of each other. Not being able to take it any longer, Sarah convinced the police to let her go home and change before being transferred to another jail. She dashed off a couple quick letters, writing that she hoped her activities with Neely would bring close to the dream of a national home for the Jewish people. Then she put a pistol to her mouth and pulled the trigger. It took her three agonizing days to die, and she still lies buried beside her mother in the cemetery in Zichron Yaakov. Despite the bravery of the members of the Zion Mule Corps and Neely, most of the Jewish community of Palestine was against their endeavors. So terrified were they of reprisals from the Turks that many in the Jewish community actually welcomed the arrests of the Neely leaders. Fellow Jews even refused in a couple of instances to hide or help Neely spies trying to escape the Turks, resulting in their capture and death. The Aronsons and their fellow spies remained controversial even after the State of Israel was established, since they had acted outside of any sort of chain of command and put the Jewish community at grave danger. There was even controversy about burying Sarah in a Jewish cemetery, since she had committed suicide, an action banned under Jewish law. But as Israel grew, so did the legacy of the Aronsons, who became national heroes. Sarah in particular was, and still is, widely commemorated. The Israeli army even today remains unique with its inclusion of women, yet until recently women were excluded from direct combat roles. Sarah, then, is a powerful symbol as the first Jewish Zionist woman to fall for the Jewish nation. She is both a religious symbol in her Jewish martyrdom and a secular one in giving her life for the Zionist cause. As for the Zion Mule Corps, their displays of heroism at the Gallipoli campaign did not prevent their casual mistreatment at the hands of the British War Office in London, which, filled with anti-Semites, refused to grant the soldiers or their survivors pensions, amongst other unequal treatment. Nevertheless, their courage was widely known. Jabotinsky admitted he was wrong to have doubted their impact, that their even small presence had elevated the cause of Zionism. Even former U.S. President Teddy Roosevelt wrote to their commander, asking if they were as good as soldiers as were the Jews in the U.S. Army. About a year after its formation, the Zion Mule Corps was disbanded in 1916, but many of its founding members and soldiers, including Jabotinsky and Trumpledor, continued to serve the British Army, and in 1917 they were successful in forming more Jewish battalions, this time renamed the Jewish Legion. The Legion, the first standing Jewish military unit since ancient times, had around 5,000 soldiers, one-third were from the United States, 
one third were from Palestine, about a quarter were from England, and the rest were from Canada and Argentina. There were also 92 Jews who had served in the Ottoman army, been captured as prisoners of war, and allowed to enlist with the Legion. In the years following World War I, many members of the Legion would move back to Palestine to lead Jewish self-defense units there, small militias which became an organized paramilitary force, and when Israel was declared in 1948, the newly formed Israel Defense Forces. Okay, so I barely scratched the surface here of Jewish Zionist activity during World War I, but we're going to hear more about Chabotinsky and Trumpeldor later on. Palestine was in a bad state during the war. The plague of locusts threatened starvation. The cruel and corrupt Ottomans threatened severe persecution. Jews found themselves expelled from Tel Aviv, Jerusalem, other cities, struggling with dire circumstances, as were all people during this terrible period of the 20th century. But the war also gave the Zionists some hope for it came at an opportune moment for a key pillar of the Zionist project. An essential element of Theodor Herzl's political Zionism plan was to win the support of the European powers for a Jewish national home. And no country is more essential for that than Great Britain. For the last couple of decades, Zionist leaders have been chipping away at England's politicians for their support, and now they saw a way to get it. If indeed the Ottoman Empire was to collapse in the Middle East and Britain was to take over Palestine, and the Jews were now on the record as having fought for and alongside the Allies, then they were in a prime position to win British support for their state-building project. The problem was that the Arabs had the same idea. They wanted to fill the Ottoman Empire's vacuum with a unified Arab Empire. With the war not even yet over, and the Turks still in control of Palestine, Great Britain was about to step into a quagmire whose impact is still being felt today, every day, in the Middle East. You want someone to blame for today's Israel-Palestinian conflict? Stick around for the next few episodes. <laughs> 